This episode of 1v1, the creator interview series, is brought to you by, well, you. If you want to learn how to support this show and the Boss Rush Media family of podcasts, head over to patreon.com slash bossrushmedia or search for us on the Patreon app on your smart device. Thanks for helping us build something better. Everyone, and welcome to 1v1 with Boss Rush Network. I'm your host, Celeste Roberts. Today, I have the pleasure of interviewing Jamie Madigan, an author with a PhD in psychology who has written the books Getting Gamers, The Psychology of Video Games and Their Impact on the People Who Play Them, and The Engagement Game, Why Your Workplace Should Look More Like a Video Game. He is also the host of the Psychology of Video Games podcast, which is how I discovered Jamie. So <laughs> thank you so much for making time, especially on a Tuesday night to talk about yourself, Jamie. Yeah, no, I appreciate the invitation. I'm glad to be here. Yeah. So I I was looking up psychology podcasts and video game podcasts, and I was kind of curious if the two worlds collided. And if I got sure the podcast did. for you, yes. <laughs> So well, how are you doing today? What have you been up to? It's early January. How's 2023 looking for you? So far, so good. Just kind of getting back into the swing of things after the, the holiday break. Uh, and I've got a, got a day job I work on, and I do this whole psychology of games thing on, in my off time, uh, nights and weekends kind of stuff. So switching gears and spending my night uh, talking about psychology of games. Usually when it's a passion project like that, you look forward to it. It probably doesn't feel like too much work, I would imagine. No, no, no. I, I cut back if it starts to feel like too much work. <laughs> yeah. So what can you tell us about yourself? Like, uh, what are some of your hobbies, your location, any fun facts you'd like to share with us? Yeah, I mean, the uh, hobbies are, are probably obvious. I'm into psychology and video games uh, and writing about those I, over at psychologygames.com, the podcast and all that. So that takes up a fair amount of my time and uh, squeezing in games whenever I can. I also play a lot of uh, tabletop role-playing games like Dungeons and Dragons, uh, which I've done pretty consistently like for the last 12 years. I've got a group, a couple of groups actually oh, that, wow. I, that I play with. Yeah, every week. Um so that's a good time. And I'm working on another book about the psychology of that. And uh, beyond that, just kind of, you know, spending time with the family and watching TV and, and movies and all that stuff. And that's that's about what I've got time for <laughs> lately. Do you sleep sometimes? Sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> I, get a, I get a good sleep every night. Well, on your website, um, psychologyofgames.com, I was reading that you've actually consulted with some video game studios before. Yeah. Yeah. Occasionally they'll see something that I wrote or see the website and want to just bend my ear or bring me in as like a consultant or do a lecture occasionally, that kind of stuff. Okay. Um, are there any games you'd like to share that you've worked on? None, none really that I had enough involvement with that I would, I would claim having, you know, worked on them. <laughs> just kind of like consulting and doing lectures uh, for the most part on, on that kind of stuff. And then I think there were a few that like never really kind of went anywhere. Um, I couldn't even remember off the top of my head, uh, even most of that was like years ago too. um, kind of back when like the, the first book came out and my name was kind of out there because of that and the podcast was just getting started. So, 
Wow. So is there a game that you have in mind that you would like to design or be involved in? Like, <laughs> is there a certain genre you would just love to work you know, on? I've heard, I've heard the game design and working in the games industry is really tough. So I'm not sure I could hack <laughs> it uh, doing that. I've got friends that have done it and are currently doing it and have made that transition from like games media, you know, press kind of uh, roles to either working in like PR or other or, or game design or community management, that kind of stuff. And it sounds like they're always just working, working real hard. And I, and I always like caution people to say like, I'm not, I'm not a game designer. I can't like tell you if a game is well designed. I just try to popularize this, you know, the psychology literature to like understanding what's going on with games and like why they're designed the way that they are. So, you know, I can tell you about reward schedules and why people behave as they do under certain circumstances and why you may want to structure um, like reward systems or level up systems or like why the successful ones are, are designed the way they are. Uh, that kind of stuff. That's where I've really tried to make it my mission is to popularize that stuff and get people thinking and talking and sharing uh, research around that to, to marry the research literature and the science with the practice of game development and community management and marketing of games and selling of games and all that sort of stuff. So, you know, at the end of the day, I'm not too disappointed that I'm not a game designer uh, these days, <laughs> but you know, if I can bring a little bit of that careful thinking to that, to, to game design, to working in the games industry, then I think that I've you know, fulfilled my mission uh, that I've adopted there. And from what I've heard, you know, over the years, a lot of game designers and people who otherwise work in the gaming industry have found like the website and the podcast and the book and uh, and found some use for it or found like, oh, yeah, like that's I didn't know that was what it was called, but I've been doing that or I've been designing systems in that way or that's why we designed this system in our game that way. And they they appreciate having like, you know, a name put to it and then some research to back it up to say like, Okay, outside of a video game context, here's what's going on. Here's the psychology behind it. Because <clears throat> I, I get the feeling and the impression that a lot of the game designers out there think like scientists a lot of times, and they think like psychologists a lot of times, and that they'll experiment and iterate and sort of like figure out what works and then measure and then form hypotheses and like test them or, or pay attention to what happens when they tweak this or that and, uh, and iterate until they get something that works. Uh, when they're able to. And so I appreciate that. And we end up kind of speaking, well, we, we end up finding like common ground and speaking in different languages about the same thing, which is always fascinating to me. So I'm going to put you on the spot, Jamie. Okay. <clears throat> you kept mentioning rewards. Is there a particular <laughs> game or game series or even a genre that you find does really well with that? And that's why it might be so successful or popular? Yeah. I mean, the, the, the big example I always go to is the the earlier Diablo series, especially like the transition from Diablo 2 to Diablo 3. It's been a few years and we've had Diablo Immortal in the meantime, which I try not to think about because it's a nightmare. <laughs> um, but I'm looking forward to Diablo 4 coming out sometime later this year, I think. This really? year or next, or next year. Yeah, not relatively too far off. But Diablo, and there's a whole chapter about this uh, in the Getting Gamers book about how when they first launched Diablo three, they had um, auction houses in the game. So you could go and they had two auction houses. One, you could pay real money. So U S dollars or local equivalent 
to buy stuff that other players had found. So they would auction it off. And then the other one, you did the same thing, but you used gold, which was like the in-game currency, you know, that everybody's used to having. <clears throat> and Blizzard, I think, made, they made a lot of money, especially off the real money auction house, because, of course, they, they wet their beak, they took a slice, uh, charged a fee, that kind of stuff. But they noticed, like, what was happening to, like, the, the game loop in Diablo, which is where you go out and you, you kill monsters, you get excited about finding treasure and you upgrade your character in some way through gear and loot. And then you sort of repeat. So it's like you go out, you find a, an elite monster to fight or a treasure chest to open. <clears throat> you anticipate what your what random reward you're going to get. And then you're enough of the time, you know, it's random whether what you get. So sometimes it's nothing, but sometimes it's something really awesome and you get excited. But the the auction house houses that they put up really like short circuited that whole game loop because if it was time to like upgrade your gear you didn't go out and look for treasure chests to open or elite monsters to fight or a boss you just went to the auction house and you bought some plus five pants uh to replace your plus three ones uh or you know a better weapon or so forth and you know kind of to blizzard's credit they redesigned the whole loot system I don't know if it, I'd say like from the ground up, but substantially. And they got rid of the auction houses to to kind of preserve the appeal of that random reward schedule of you don't know what you're going to get when you open that chest or, or beat that boss. And that was more compelling for players and got them to, I think, to keep playing and go to the late in-game content, you know, where they were doing runs on on dungeons and adventure areas that was just for the sake of trying to get that one perfect piece, you know, to complete their set or their build. And uh, that was always, I, I always like that example of like, here's why random reward schedules work in games. You know, it's nice to be surprised. Uh, and it's nice to be surprised because most of the time you're not surprised. And so it really mm -hmm. stands out and it motivates us and it keeps us, you know, those reward systems in our brain that have evolved uh, over time to serve us pretty well games hijack those those you know psychological mental systems uh for our entertainment and it was nice to see blizzard like realize the value of that and step back and do something that was better for the sake of the game if you want to be a patreon producer head on over to patreon patreon.com slash media and find out which tier is right for you our patreon producers at the five dollar tier or higher for this month are adriel munger austin campbell Celeste Roberts, Christian S., Sana Deary, Francisco Santillan, and Rebecca Jewell. Thank you for your continued support. Surprises are nice. Um, I've subscribed to different things before, like, uh, I don't know, like makeup kits, for example. Like, mm. pay $10 a month, you get a random sampling of makeup, and mm -hmm. sometimes they'll say, you might get this or you might get that. And it was actually a little bit more exciting for me to not know exactly what I was getting. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. They do the same thing with just like geek stuff. Like you'll get like t-shirts or a coffee mug or some decals, mm -hmm. but you never know like what they're going to be from. It could be some, some obscure anime you've never heard of, or it could be from your favorite video game series. Um, and you're kind of surprised and I guess entertained is at least the, the hope whenever you open that box up every month. Do you enjoy those kinds of boxes and that kind of gamble? No, not really. <laughs> I kind of <laughs> maybe it might be fun once or twice, but then I'm looking at like I'm not paying like fifty bucks a month for this. I would I could just mm -hmm. take that money and buy what I want um, with that kind of stuff. So 
it's fun maybe a time or two or to receive as like a gift or a promotion mm -hmm. but uh yeah i think i think the shine kind of wears off especially after the few times where i get something I'm like what is this i don't even know what this is i'm not wearing this <laughs> this t-shirt is three times my size i can't even get you i can't out shard it. this for crafting supplies so <laughs> i'm not really interested exactly yeah so let's go Let's go a little bit back in time. And what got you interested in psychology? Um, did you always know, I want to study psychology. I want to be a psychologist. I want to pursue my PhD. Or <laughs> a wee lad. <laughs> yeah. Growing up, a uh, two-year-old trying to <laughs> pursue a career in psychology. No, I mean, it was when I got to college and I, I had some good professors, uh, as you know, it is often the case. And I had some friends, some older friends um, who were friends of my older sister uh, who were psychology majors and specifically like they were pursuing, uh, what I eventually got my PhD in, which is industrial organizational psychology, which is psychology applied to the workplace. It's like IO psychologists study beha human beha behavior in the workplace. And we try to make work not suck. Uh, and that, that's the basic <laughs> idea. And there were a couple of, uh, of professors, uh, Bob and Joyce Hogan, uh, at the university of Tulsa where I went to undergrad and they were really good professors and they were, um, some of these older guys were like grad students of theirs. Uh, and so they knew them. And so they kind of brought me into the fold and I did got to help out some grad students on some research and run subjects through lab studies, which pretty much just involved like handing out papers, but made me feel important at the time. And in any case, and like, I knew that, and I, you know, I liked all my psychology classes, but I knew it was like a really broad field, right? Like there's a, there's a lot of different flavors of psychology, a lot of different corners of the field. There's, clinical psychology, you know, that deals with like counseling and mental health issues. There's industrial organizational, which is more applied to the workplace. There's consumer psychology, there's, you know, animal experimental psychology and, and media psychology and all these other different kinds of psychology. And I kind of knew I didn't want to go into the, the mental health uh, aspect of it because I have enough time dealing with my own problems. I really didn't want to like try to be responsible for other people. Like I didn't think that would go back, go well for them uh, if they place their, their hopes in me. Um, and I, I know I have friends and internet friends who are therapists of that kind. Many of them kind of that use games and video games, comics and other vessels of, of popular media media uh, and popular culture in their practices. And God bless them because they're, they're great at their job and they help a lot of people, but, I never really felt like that was my calling. Uh, so I went into IO psychology because I thought it would be um, useful for me and I could help organizations solve problems and and do better and help employees be happier uh, in their jobs. And so that's kind of what I ended up you know, following, getting my, my master's and PhD in that eventually. Wow. That's, that's what I'm doing in my day job uh, to this day. Wow. So companies who seek out your services, are they usually larger companies or mom and small mom and pop size companies of the broad spectrum of companies? Yeah. I mean, I, in my career, I've worked for um, small consulting companies, small being like 50 people. Um, and then I've worked for large federal government uh, agencies, which I don't recommend. <laughs> and then I've worked for uh, a small startup company, like a tech uh, startup company that uh, had um, some uh, web services and, and apps that we were developing that were related to IO psychology and helping uh, people do that kind of work. And then uh, I've worked for large um, 
like utility companies and private private companies that that sell things uh, over time. So I've worked for a lot of different, you know, never any like mom and pop gas station or anything like that. Uh, I don't tend to get called up <laughs> for those types <laughs> of roles. Um, but I maybe you know would work. You know, as when I was in grad school, I did like you know, some internships for like boutique, what we call like boutique consultants, you know, people that would just be like one or two people in an office and they have clients and uh, maintain a client list and make a living that way. Um, so a good range of uh, different kinds of things in different industries. Uh, and I'm still enjoying it. It's, you know, it's a growing field. Uh, more and more psychology, IO psychology, PhDs are be, being minted every year. And uh, the industry is kind of growing and it's typically seen as a, as a growth area as well. Wow. So do you mostly work with the HR department, the CEO? Yeah. I mean, usually I've been situated within the human resources department. And so there might be like a group of, of IO psychologists in that grouping, in that group that are maybe either act like internal consultants, like we'll get loaned out to different departments within the company and go help like implement this thing or answer this question or do this problem or manage this program. Um, so yes, it's usually within within the HR group. Now, this might be a silly question, but is there a certain phase in a company's life that you would get involved? Or is it all phases? Is it beginning? Is it middle? Is it, oh my gosh, we've hit a crisis? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's usually larger companies that are either working in or customers of, uh, because you, <clears throat> a lot of times will have You'll need to answer questions like, how do I organize people into groups? How do I hire the correct people? And, and when I'm dealing with high volumes of, of hiring, you know, I need to hire like 100 or 300 or 500 people uh, in this role across a year. Um, how do I, you know, best allocate these training uh, budget and, and resources? How do I teach people? How do I upskill people? That kind of stuff. So yeah, you're usually dealing with a certain critical mass of like employees, not always necessarily. Um, but, uh, most of the time, especially in the types of niches within that industry that I, I, I've worked in typically, which has been like assessment, you know, like developing assessments and tests for people who are applying for jobs to make sure they, they have the right skills, you know, that they're mm -hmm. good at what they claim that they're good at or that they know the things that they claim they know those kinds of things. Oh, neat. So where do you see yourself in five years or <laughs> 10 years? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, probably pretty close to where I am now. Uh, I think, uh, yeah, things are, things are good. So I'm not sure I'll be moving on anywhere. I just started with this most recent company like last April. So I've been wow. there for less than a year. Yeah. Awesome. But in your free time, whenever you have it, you love video games. And we're going we're gonna to continue this um, journey down memory lane. And I'd love to know what got you into video games? Your, your parents, siblings, yourself, friends? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've always, I'm one of those people that's always been into video games. I'm part of like that first generation that really grew up with the hobby. It was kind of always around in some form. And like as a kid, I was always I, I was always say that I, I was a arcade rat. So the old coin operated. And maybe I'm like dating myself a little bit here. No, I grew old, up with those too. <laughs> the old kind. Well, then you know what I'm talking about. The old kinds of games you would you would plunk a quarter at a time uh, or a token, depending on mm -hmm. you know which arcade you went to, uh, to play um, for a few minutes, and then you you continue your game or start over. 
So, you know, I lived in those those arcades. There were a couple of them near where I grew up in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and uh, spent a lot of time there. Even got to, like, know the arcade attendants uh, that were working there and, and made friends. And then, you know, eventually graduated into things like home consoles and home computers. So, you know, I had um, really like the earliest days of the, the old Atari 2600. I remember getting that for Christmas one year. And then for a long stretch, I played like PC games, like home PC games. So I'd play like Wizardry and Ultima series and then just other kind of random stuff um, that I can sort of remember, but don't remember the specifics about. Uh, and then just continued that hobby and that that habit uh, throughout most of high school. And then when I went to college, I had I kind of got that was like my gaming gap uh, when I was like too busy for the most mm -hmm. part, like with college and studying and partying and hanging out with, you know, all kind all the new people I was meeting and, and all that stuff and having a good time and sort of dropped out of the hobby then. And then when I eventually uh, started going back to grad school, I bought another personal computer with my student loan money uh, so that I could have it, you know, to write my papers and do my research and, and so forth. And then I was like, what's over here in the gaming section <laughs> of Best Buy, <laughs> uh, you know, and picked out a few things and sort of made my way back into that hobby. And then before long was deep into games like Starcraft and Starcraft 2 and Doom and then eventually like Quake and, and all of those um, first person shooters from the late uh, mid to late 1990s and adventure games and Baldur's Gate and all those great, uh, what were they, the Infinity Engine role-playing games um, or like Baldur's Gate and Icewind Dale and, and all that whole series of games. And then from there, like just kept with it. And like, it's been one contiguous unbroken like streak of gaming uh, since then to, to this day. And eventually even worked like at, sort of like in or maybe adjacent to the gaming industry for a while for a company called GameSpy Industries in like the early 2000s. And GameSpy made, they had like two sides of their business and one was like middleware for game developers. So it was like, oh, you want like multiplayer matchmaking in your game. We, we have software that will just plug into your game and you can lease it or, you know, buy it from us or work out a deal. And then the side that I worked on was more like the gaming content side. So it was like the genesis of the gaming websites and social This is the days before social media. But, you know, we had a network of websites that were like fan sites. And then we had like sites you could download files and find cheat codes and walkthroughs and all that kind of stuff for games. So did that for a few years and then went back into the IO psychology uh, thing after a while because I was like, wow, I spent a lot of time and money getting my PhD in this. I should probably do something. <laughs> with it. I went to work for GameSpy like right when I graduated with my PhD and I told like my professors what I was doing and they were like, what, what <laughs> your game, what? Uh, and they couldn't believe it. So I was like, no, it's like, it's a small startup company. It's going to be fun. I'm moving out to California from, you know, St. Louis where I went to grad school and it'll be a blast. And it was, um, so glad that I did it. I think it's important for people to have a variety of jobs and different hobbies and things they try because that's really how you find what you love. Yeah. 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 I like to try on different hobbies and learn new things. You know, I've been into photography and web design and um, all kinds of just random little stuff like that, that I'll just catch an interest in and um, podcasting, you know, I just like, we just kind of got up one morning. It's like, I should do a podcast about all this. And 
how do I do a podcast? What do I need? How do I do it? How do I, you know, what software do I need? What hardware and so forth? So yeah, yeah, just try stuff out. It's amazing what's out there as a resource to help you figure it out. It really is. And I mean, it's literally at our fingertips with our, mm-hmm. our phones. And gosh, I remember the days of having to use the library card catalog for my research <laughs> papers. Yeah. <laughs> and scanning documents and highlighting different things and making sure I got the author's name and the correct title for the MLA format. And oh my gosh. Yeah, it's burned into my brain at this point. Yeah. <laughs> could do it in my sleep. So regarding games, so you were mentioning um, games that sound kind of like massive multiplayer online games. Is that kind of your preferred genre or first person shooter? No. So I, I've dipped into the MMOs like occasionally, but they're at this point in my life and for a while now, they're too much of a time sink, right? Like I can't sit there and play like 30 hours a week um, to grind out a lot of those things. I played like World of Warcraft, you know, when it was hot because I was like a sense of obligation. I was like, I should know what this is. I should like play this for a while. And it was fun. But then I just kind of like sat up one day and was like, I have sat here for like nine and a half hours and played this game on a Saturday. This is this is not healthy for me. Uh, so, you know, cut back and and play some other different kinds of games. But yeah, I like I play a lot of different kind of stuff. First person shooters, action adventure games, um, favorite series is like the the Soulsborne series from from software like Dark Souls, Bloodborne. Mm, mm-hmm. uh, I've started yet another run through Elden Ring within the last few weeks um, of, of replaying that again. Um, so that's my favorite type of game and then series of games that I, I keep going back to and have beaten all of those games multiple times. Nice. So yeah. do you do you and your family, your friends play any games in person sometimes? Yeah. So I, I have two kids, two daughters, and I was threatened. My wife doesn't play. And I was threatened that, like, if you won't turn into a gamer, I'll make one myself. <laughs> and so like <laughs> I I trained them from an early age, you know, to play games with me. And so we played games on the Xbox uh, couch co-op, you know, types of games like the the Lego games like Lego Harry Potter, mm. Lego Batman, Lego Star mm-hmm. Wars. I played a lot of those with my older game, uh, older daughter, um, and she is 18 now, just went away to college um, last, uh, yeah, over the summer and she was home for Christmas break and she just left a, a couple of days ago to go back for her second semester. Um, so I played with her a lot and my younger daughter as well. And she, she plays a lot. She plays a lot of, she's like the weirdest combination. She'll play a lot of Roblox, which I don't know if you're familiar with, but it's like a gaming platform that's, that's typically skewed at younger kids. And she has played it since she was younger. Um, but she also plays a lot of, um, oh, what's that one? Uh, Genshin Impact. Mm-hmm. Um, and she plays a lot of Valorant, which is a competitive online first person shooter. Uh, wow. She, she's like really good <laughs> at Valorant. Uh, I would not want to play against her. Uh, so, and then she plays like a lot of casual games, which are those like packing games where you kind of like mm-hmm. arrange everything into like a box or unpack things or, or like, um, power wash a house or yes, <laughs> weird yeah. stuff like that. <laughs> um, so she has like, a very eclectic <laughs> collection, but it spans a lot of different areas. So yeah, yeah, we, Ooh. we've played games together for years now. Do you think either of your daughters will venture into the world of esports? No, I don't think so. They're too old. 
uh, <laughs> at this point. <laughs> Even they, you know, the the sixteen year old is too old. I feel now. I mean, I, I don't think so. I think one one of them might have had aspirations of being a Twitch streamer at one time or another, um, but didn't really follow through uh, with that. Oh yeah. There, there's so many ways. I, I never would have dreamed when I was a kid or a teenager that, Hey, I can watch my friends who moved away, play mm-hmm. a video game and interact with them. For <laughs> sure. Yeah. Mine. Yeah. Yeah. And if my older daughter that's gone off to college had like a computer that could play a lot of games, like she doesn't just for space reasons, cause her mm-hmm. dorm is like so tiny and she shares it with another person. She doesn't really have room for like a, a proper PC gaming rig. Um, but maybe when, if she gets an on campus apartment or something bigger later, we'll work something out. I'll use it as an, as an excuse to upgrade my computer and then send her my old one. That's usually what I do. <laughs> yeah. You get the shiny new toy. Right. <laughs> oh, you're making me all, um, sentimental because my dad plays video games as well. Mm. And my parents have three daughters and video games have been a huge part of our life. I remember you how play with your parents or yes. Your oh yeah. And your, oh. and your sisters or. Yep. My mom would um, watch us. And even though she didn't really play games, she enjoyed seeing us play them. And um, I I laugh whenever I hear the shop theme from Ocarina of Time. I'm a huge Zelda fan (laughs) because my mom would walk in and start dancing to (laughs) it. (laughs) So (laughs) um, my my dad would play Mortal Kombat with me, which I'm Mm kind of looking back. They let you win. Yes, most of the time. Um, (laughs) But I'm kind of... I mean, it, the one I played was not nearly as graphic as the ones they have today. I mean, I was playing mm-hmm. it on Super mm-hmm. Nintendo, but I'm kind of looking back and thinking, I'm really amazed they let their uh, seven, six-year-old daughter yeah. play this game. I've gotten some of that feedback as well, <laughs> playing the, these kinds of like, violent games that, you know, hey, the research says that it doesn't really affect you, or that, at least that's my read on it. Yeah, uh, I, actually, I... I, I honestly just remember, Hey, my dad's spending time with me mm-hmm. and another factor. Oh my goodness. I can play as girls in this game. That was a big mm-hmm. deal to me. As Murderous, well. violent girls. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, my, my sisters still play games. Um, I'm the big Zelda fan. They like Pokemon. Uh, we play mm-hmm. Mario Kart on the switch. Um, so very... family sounds like, yes, yes. Yeah. And I really, until I started um, dating when I was older, I didn't really play PlayStation and Xbox because with a family with three daughters, it's like, okay, we're all getting just one system. Yeah. We're not buying, you know, five different systems for you. You're, you're going to have to pick Nintendo. And fortunately, we, we like Mario. We like Zelda. You do worse. Yeah. <laughs> so I enjoy I, I never it. really played Nintendo in its heyday, in like the N64 or... Um, the SNES, like that was sort of like that period when I was in college. So that was like a big gap in my gaming career. And like, I own a switch, but I don't really play any, any games on it. But, um, so I'm not really much of a Nintendo person. I don't play the Zeldas or the Marios or any of that sort of stuff. I promise you have so many options outside. I'm not coming up short with options. <laughs> no, no. Um, I'm a big fan of Game Pass on Xbox. Yeah. I love that mm-hmm. so much. Yeah, I've got that too. It kind of reminds me of Friday nights going to movie gallery or blockbuster. And yeah, right. What game am I going to rent tonight? <laughs> yeah. I mean, as many as you want. You, know, you yeah. don't have to be, and nothing's ever checked out where it's just a box sitting on the shelf. Exactly. 
So you mentioned podcasting and, and writing books. Which one came first, the, the published books or the podcasts? So the books came first and the website okay. before that. So I started doing the website in like 2009. Okay. Uh, amazingly, um, just kind of on a lark. Like I'd always had like writing projects. So I would write about book reviews or write about stuff going on in my life and kind of rode the 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 original blogging wave in like the early 2000s and never was like successful or popular. But uh, I just decided like I should write about this psychology stuff applied to games because I'd been reading a lot of stuff around applied psychology and the psychology of decision making. And that was like the era where, you know, the idea of um, nudges and um, heuristics and biases like started to become really popular. And I was like, I should write about how this applies to games and put up the website and wrote like five articles to launch with just for fun and and just decided let's see where this goes. And amazingly, like psychology of was available, like the domain. Uh, so I, you know, grabbed that and, and threw up a WordPress uh, site and it found an audience uh, fairly quickly, actually. And like I said before, a lot of it was game industry people, game designers, as well as other people that just kind of like to think seriously about games. And that was like the peer, the, the time period when the whole, uh, games academic or like the academic study of games, not necessarily psychology, but just, you know, ludology and thinking about games in an academic lens uh, started to take off as well. So kind of riding that wave up and did that for a few years and then decided like, wow, I should I should write a book <laughs> just about all of this, because a lot of a lot of other people had been taking the formula of like, okay, I wrote this blog and I have this archive of stuff from the blog and I can turn that into a book. And I've got like an audience and I can go to a publisher and I can say X thousands of people come to my website every day. If you publish my book, I can get it in front of all of them and they will, some portion of them will buy something like that. And, and publisher, like, that's what they want to hear. Like you have to have what's called like a platform for your book, meaning like mm. who you can sell it to, who will listen to you when you tell them about it. And you know, you can get in front of them, which is why if you have like a big YouTube channel or a Twitch stream or something like that, you're a lot more likely to be able to get a book deal or get a publisher to publish your book um, than somebody who's starting from scratch. So I was kind of good timing. I was lucky that I had the audience that, that I had. It wasn't huge. It wasn't massive or anything, but it was enough that, you know, publisher was like willing to say, OK, yeah, fine, we'll do it. So. I did the the book and that was an interesting experiment because it was like book chapters are much more long form than a typical blog post. Right. Mm -hmm. So blog posts might be like a thousand words, maybe 700 or, or, or so. Um, mine tended to be a little bit longer on psychology of games, but um, book chapters might be four to 5,000 words or, or longer. So you get to sort of like explore much more in depth, the topics and then, include like clusters of related topics under one heading. And it was a, it was a different experience than, than writing blog posts. Um, and I ended up not like recycling nearly as many blog posts as I thought I would. I was like, this is going to be easy. I'm just going to take like these blog posts and cram them together. And that's a, that's a book. <laughs> and it did not work out that way <laughs> either. Just, and for the most part, like I decided not to work it out that way. just cause I was having, much more fun, like diving deeper into these big questions. And each question or each chapter in the book is like a question, like, 
why do we do this when we play games and why mm-hmm. are games designed this way? And how do games get us to do this? And that was a, a fun approach to take. Uh, so I did that. And then when I submitted the final manuscript for that uh, to the publisher so they could do their thing and edit it and get it ready. And it was still going to be like almost another year before it actually hit shelves just because the print industry works that slowly. It's when you're dealing with physical things like that, it Mm. just takes a long time. Uh, And they have their schedule. It's like, they're not going to release the book in February. They're going to wait for like June because that's when most people buy books. Really? Yeah. Oh yeah. Summer is tends to be like uh, maybe like the holidays too, but generally like, yeah, summer is like the big reading season when people have time and go on vacations Hmm. and stuff. At least that's what they told me. Maybe so. Maybe there's like an actual industry uh, publishing industry insider out there listening right now and shaking their fist. But uh... <laughs> I actually I was talking to Jamie before we started recording, and I have his Getting Gamers mm-hmm. book. I got it for Christmas, and I, I can say it has a lot of humor in it. It's it's like your psychology textbook meets a comedian, yep. which I enjoy. <laughs> it's well, it, it keeps the flow, it keeps it engaging, it keeps it conversational, and. Um, I appreciate that. It's, it's entertaining. Yeah. Well, good. Thank you. I'm glad you, you find it that way and appreciate the compliment. And that was like a through line from the website and the, the blog that I wanted to, to maintain. Cause I, I tried to have that voice and that tone as there. Cause it's like, yeah, this is based in science and I have references in there and I went and read all these original sources and, and talked to all of these people and didn't just make stuff up, but it's also like, it's about video games. Come on. It's supposed to be entertaining. It's supposed to be fun. Uh, and so I wanted to make sure that it had that tone and, and that voice along with it. So kind of writing that line is, is fun and, and hard sometimes. And I probably fell flat a few times, but it was much better product, I think, than just another sort of dry um, textbook approach to all of this all of this stuff. And I've, I've heard from like people teaching psychology courses and game design courses, you know, that they've used it as a textbook in their game, like for that. Wow. Reason. Yeah. Um, two, like three, I think I've heard from like three professors over the years that have done that, um, which I love and find completely flattering and, and am tickled that they do that. And they, they usually cite like, yeah, this is something I think I can put in front of my students and they'll actually read it. You know, they'll read it like all the way through <laughs> and they can learn something from it. Yeah. Education doesn't have to be boring or stuffy by yeah, any yeah. stretch of the imagination. So are there any particular psychologists or theorists that you've admired over the years or you like to base practices off of? I mean, not not really. Like it's hard to call out any particular psychologists like the especially these days like everything is done in teams right like science is done by groups of people Mm -hmm. these days for the most part and there's been like breakout people's like you know amos tversky and daniel kahneman who wrote a lot about science of decision making and danny uh kahneman had uh that book uh thinking fast and slow came out in like 10 years ago or so like 2011 i think um which has become sort of a a very well-known book and then you know, Dan Ariely, behavioral economist at Duke University, has written some stuff that um, I found really interesting that I reference throughout my books as well, the studies that he and his colleagues have done. Um, so those are those are all people that if I see they have a new book out, then I'll I'll go and I'll buy that um, or uh, go and, and kind of I don't do that much original research anymore, it seems. But 
you know, I'll keep up with the topics that they, they post about and write about. Okay. Cause I, I always giggle when I think about like Frazier, how he's obsessed with Freud <laughs> and his brother Niles is obsessed with Young. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's for television. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> Freud and Young were, were, how, how do I always describe it? Like they were signposts on the site on psychology's road to like maturity and development. Mm-hmm. They were not final destinations. Like mm-hmm. they were important early thinkers that like got a lot of stuff right. And then just made up stuff out of whole cloth or (laughs) got stuff completely wrong or completely off, off the mark. Or you're like, how did, how did you come up with that? Or no, you are overreaching by miles when you're trying to make these claims. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'm not going to say, going to say like, yeah, you should go read the original Freud or, or young, (laughs) that sort of stuff. If you want to go ahead, whatever, I'm not stopping you. I'm not gatekeeping. Uh, psychology, but um, I think you'll be limited in the practicality and the applications of that that older stuff. It's good to know that the field is evolving so much and people are discovering. I mean, that's what science is. What have we gotten wrong and how can we improve it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and like Freud was like one of the first people to identify the concept of the unconscious, right? And the fact that uncon- there, are, there are things going on underneath our consciousness that affect our behaviors and affect our decisions And that's true. It's just that he was wrong in most of the particulars, I think, (laughs) most of the specifics around that. Seemed a little confidently wrong as well. (laughs) right. So what have some, um, tell us about your podcast. So we've talked about your website, we've talked about your books, and and you're still creating a a podcast amidst these other ventures. And that's amazing. Again, I don't know how you sleep. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So the podcast I started, like I said, after I submitted the manuscript for the first book and I had time and I was like, I should, I'm going to do a podcast because you know, what's really hot right now is spoken word. (laughs) Uh, All the kids love it. (laughs) You can recite poetry for us tonight. Yeah, no. (laughs) Um, I mean, as as opposed to doing like a YouTube channel or something else that I could have chosen to do. I was like, yeah, podcast that's relatively low effort relative to like doing video for at any way. And I thought I would be able to learn how to do it more easily and then we could see where it goes. And, um, and here we are, I'm, I'm still doing it. So, you know, I just went out there. I bought like a cheap blue Yeti microphone that was like 30 bucks or something like that. And some headphones and just totally did it with on the cheap and it worked well enough. Used like free software, like audacity to, uh, edit it and produce it and just taught myself how to do it and had a lot of fun doing that and learning about audio engineering or at least the bare minimum of it that I needed to to produce a decent sounding podcast. And then like for the longest time I was recording it like in my closet, I would like, because I, I would set like a little, um, table that, um, might go in something in your kitchen. You might put like your microwave on it. Mm. And I would like roll that into the closet. And then I take my laptop and I would hook up the microphone and I do it in there because like all of the clothes that were hanging on the racks in the closet would deaden sound. And it was really okay. quiet and you didn't have like any background noise or interference and it sounded good uh, or good enough. Uh, so I did that like for years and years and years. And then I upgraded to, you know, a better computer and uh, I mean a better uh, microphone and uh, did some baffling, you know, in the, in the room that I use for it and uh, got a little bit better at the audio engineering and like post-processing to make it sound a little bit better. But, yeah. What do you love? What do you love the most about it, about podcasting? 
I love, so the format of the podcast is that I let somebody else do all the work. Uh, so I have like <laughs> guest experts uh, come on the podcast. So I'll reach out to people who are working in the games industry and they have a background in psychology or researchers who are, who are doing research um, or, or other types of uh, writing or content about psycho- psychology and video games um, and invite them on the show to be like a guest expert. So I have like one or two or occasionally three guest experts on a, on a panel uh, and I'll just interview them kind of like what you're doing with me, but generally I'll talk about like their research or their, their work or, or that kind of stuff. And to answer your question about like, what do I like best about it is like meeting all of those people and growing my network um, to include them mm-hmm. because I've met like people that do a lot of, a lot of interesting stuff. And I know you're going to ask like, well, who's your favorite? And I don't know if I could say <laughs> off the top of that's my head. That's not fair, right? That's yeah, not fair. That's not really fair. <laughs> Um, but you know, you can go to the psychology games website and, and see like, uh, I think I'm up to like 80 and I, and the numbers is low because I do one episode a month. Um, so I, I wanted to keep it both manageable so that I didn't like overcommit and under deliver. And Mm. I wanted to like not burn through the potential guests too, too quickly, uh, because there's, there's only so many people that are doing stuff around psychology and games. Uh, out there. And so I didn't want to like go through all that too quickly. Um, so yeah, like getting to know them and net- networking with them and then like running into them at, at a con- at a convention or, or something along those lines or, Hey, like I'm in town. Uh, you know, you want to go grab some coffee or lunch or any of that sort of stuff. And just like getting to know like what they're doing. And, and there's a lot of really interesting people out there and I'm glad to have talked with some of them. That's that's amazing. I mean, that's that's a gift right there. I mean, the, to have the ability and the opportunity to connect with these people. Did you ever imagine you'd be able to do that? <laughs> nah, I don't know. I never really thought about it until I just decided to do it. Um, people are surprisingly interested in talking to you about what they do. It's been like my general uh, thing that I've I've discovered and. A lot of my work as an, as an industrial organizational psychologist involves talking to people about their jobs. So in some ways that was a fit. So hmm. for a long time, you know, I would be going and doing like job analyses, which involves like sitting down with somebody and saying like, what do you do? How do you do it? What technology do you use? What outputs do you produce? Who do you work with to do it? Who depends on you? Who do you depend on? Um, show me what you do. And having those conversations just about like, tell me about your work and in a lot of ways, that's what my podcast is, that I'll get somebody on there and I'll say, tell me about your work. Like, what do you do? And a lot of times it'll center around a particular like paper or, or you know, journal article that they publish. But other times it may just be about their job um, that they do. And people are surprisingly or maybe not surprisingly willing to talk about like what they do <laughs> and talk about their work. And a lot of times they appreciate somebody like just taking an interest in that sort of stuff and talking shop with them. I've, I've heard that the biggest compliment you can give someone is saying, if they tell you what they do for a living, whether it be something more um, hands-on or maybe something more um, cerebral, if you say that sounds really hard, a lot of people take that as a compliment. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That, that takes like a lot of expertise or yeah, not many people could do that kind of, kind of thing. Yeah, like you're you're special and you're unique, and this is a valid service. I mean, I'm I'm of the opinion. Oh my gosh, every job is so crucial, mm. and 
I would absolutely you'd notice if your sanitation worker stopped working, that would probably be the first job you notice right. if it disappeared. Yeah. Not the CEO of the sanitation company though. I would never no. notice if they didn't show up for work. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I'm looking at your website right now. And I mean, just the, the gamut of topics of fan convention, esports performance consulting, Twitch donation, psychology of trolling, just mm-hmm. what a wonderful range of the psychology of the legend of Zelda. I have yeah. that, I have that book yeah. actually. <laughs> you do? Yeah. That's a, that's a good one. Yeah. Right, yeah. So, I just kind of like wow. keep an eye out for, for books that come out. And like I said, by this point, I've developed like a network of people who do stuff in this area. And I, I can sort of hear a lot of times about, I'll follow them on social media and I'll see them tweeting about it or, or sharing something along those lines. And then, you know, once every month or two, I just go on Google scholar and do searches for psychology video game, or I'll go through some of the major journals and just see what their recent publications have been. And that's how I find new people to talk to a lot as well. Now, this might be a reach, but I see something, um, the toxic behavior in games and, and you discuss it in getting gamers and how people, mm-hmm. they're behind the screen. They're sometimes not very nice. Has anyone ever reached out to you and said, you know, I listened to this episode of your podcast or I read about this in your book and I recognize my behavior was not very kind and inspired yeah. me to change? <laughs> I haven't ever had anybody reach out to me in a, in a conf- confessing kind of way <laughs> like that. Like, forgive me, Jamie, I have sinned. <laughs> like, okay, you're okay, now well, the, they're back in the clothes closet and you can't see them. <laughs> right. You're kind of a jerk, but I really don't know if I can help you. Um, but I, I have had conversations just, you know, with people that I've, I've talked to and they realize like, you know, yeah, no, I... I troll for fun or, you know, I'm toxic for fun for me, you know, for them uh, sometimes <laughs> and they kind of understand, you know, why they do it and get a better sense of like the effects that I have on other people and on like the community as well, like, and the products and how much money and effort gaming companies have to, to spend and invest to deal with them, you know, when they are toxic, uh, in, in a game like that. Um, so yeah, I never had anybody reach out to me, but I have had conversations, especially like people who think that they've outgrown it, you know, like, yeah, I did that when I was younger. Mm. I, I did that when I was in a bad place or, or something along those lines. Hurt people hurt people usually. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. That it's, do you find that we're on a positive trend now as that behavior is being no. recognized? And, no. Oh, I was hoping for a... <laughs> no, sorry. <laughs> people are people. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I still I still see it in a lot in the games that I play. Like, I, I play a lot of, like, Overwatch, uh, now Overwatch 2, um, which has got a bad rap, and Blizzard has had their own problems. I know I keep, like, bringing up their games, and they've had some legitimate, like, cultural culture problems and the way that they treat their employees, but play a lot of Overwatch too. And I won't touch like the competitive modes because they're just too toxic. Like people on there are just terrible Um, and screaming and yelling and, and all the things that you associate with toxic behavior in games. So I just like, and that's kind of a loss for me and maybe in some ways for the other players and the potential players that I could be playing with and against that uh, I just like, Nope, I'm sticking to quick play. I'm not going to, not going to deal with that. And I'm like, I'm turning off or I'm leaving the voice chat mm-hmm. uh, as well. You know, I don't, I don't use my, my mic in those games. 
so I guess on the, the flip side, the positive side, if a parent went to you and said, you know, I don't really know that much about video games. Yeah, I know who Mario is. My child is interested in playing games. Can you tell me some positive outcomes from playing video games? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, for sure. There's a fair amount of research that talks about, I think I wrote an article about this on the website, about how games are good for um, de-stressing and like recuperating. So, you know, you're at school and it's tough or you're at work and it's tough or you're dealing with your family and games, like just like any other hobby that people thinks people do for fun can help you recuperate those mental resources that you need to deal with stressors uh, throughout the rest of the day and the week. Uh, so that's a great thing. Um, games are can be a great form of socialization. I like most Tuesday nights. I know we're recording this on a on a Tuesday, but um, on most Tuesdays I have a group of friends that I play games with, uh, video games. Well, so thank we'll, you for making time for me. <laughs> yeah, no. Well, one of them's actually like in the hospital. His wife's having a baby. Oh, um, so it's a good that's... hospital visit. Oh god. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and the other, and yeah, the other one's like in Miami, Florida, who, you know, he used to live here in town with me and we became friends then. And then his job took him to Miami. So we're able to like maintain that friendship and connect, uh, at least once a week where we'll, we'll sit down and play games for, you know, a few hours on a Tuesday night. Nice. Uh, so they can be, games can be great for maintaining and creating new social relationships, friendships, deepening them. They're the, you know, they're the modern water cooler, the thing that, you know, people can get together and talk about and experience together, uh, especially through services like Discord or other or in-game, you know, matchmaking and social tools. And then the thing I always like to point out is that games and game fandom are springboards for other hobbies as well. So how many people could you name that got into art or uh, game uh, programming or sound design or uh, writing, uh, you know, fiction writing or nonfiction writing or games criticism or all of these other kinds of things that you like to do when you're a fan of something. Like I'm going to, you know, write a story about Link or I'm going to go create some fan art for Persona, uh, this Persona game that I'm playing, or I'm going to learn how to make a podcast or I'm going to learn how to stream on Twitch or YouTube, and I'm going to learn about video production uh, through that. Uh, so games, I think, I suspect more than a lot of other hobbies are very good at that, very good at getting people in, interested in not only like technical aspects like the audio produce, production or streaming or programming or mod making or game design, but also those creative outlets as well, fan art and, and mm -hmm. fan fiction and um uh, streaming, uh, like, you know, playing games and, and like entertaining people on a stream, those kinds of things, like being a personality, I guess is one way to put it, uh, online. And so I, you know, I, I've done that. Look, I, I created websites and books and podcasts because I liked games and, and because I wanted to talk about them in a specific context. So I'm, I'm a good example of that as well. I vividly remember when I was in, out in third grade and I was playing one of the Donkey Kong Country games, I thought I should write a story about Dixie Kong and Diddy Kong. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> Where's that story now? Is that... <laughs> um, it's on some index cards. I don't know if they're still at my parents' house or no. <laughs> long gone. But... It's a more concrete answer than I expected to be. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I, I just, I vividly remember sitting at the dining room table writing about Dixie Kong. <laughs> yeah. And um, 
I don't know if you've heard of other people doing this, but as a child, as I'd play games, in addition to pursuing the intended journey, I would actually like out loud narrate my own story. Oh, really? Well, play. Okay. Sure. <laughs> I mean, people do what they call them like uh, AGR, AGRs, after game reports, where they'll they'll, oh, okay. they'll do screenshots uh, from their game. Like they'll take screenshots as they play the game and then they'll write stories uh, like after game reports. Oh, That's wow. Sort of like, what they are and they can range from like a description of of the the real events that happened when they were playing or they can take those screenshots and then form them into something new like a, a new story or narrative that they come up with along the way or they'll come up with like headcanon for the characters and tell the story from another you know npc's point of view or something crazy like that that's really creative i think yeah. i'm gonna have to jump into that because sure. that sounds fun yeah, it could be. And it obviously is for some people. Yeah. So you are a very busy, very busy person. And you I know that you're working on your psychology of D&D book. Would you like to talk about that? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm a little over halfway done with that one, with that manuscript. Um, so it's it's essentially getting gamers applied to tabletop role playing games like Dungeons and Dragons, which is another hobby of mine, things that I played. I'm in a couple of games a week with a couple of different friend groups of friends. And so it's structured a lot like getting gamers where each chapter is like a question. So it's like, why do we enjoy role-playing or, or like what can get us to, to role-play our characters? Like, why do we get um, angry at dice? You know, like, and why, what are, which is about like perceptions, the psychology of perceptions around luck and randomness and that kind of stuff. And, why do what why do people get together and solve problems or how to get people get together and solve problems as a group uh, what causes a group of people to gel and sort of fit together well um, what's the psychology around like making choices in games of what kind of character do I build or what do I do when it's my turn so all of these kinds of, of questions um, I thought would also could be answered by psychology <laughs> just like they were for video games uh, so I, I set out to do that and found a, a publisher, uh, Leyline Press, who also published the Psychology of Zelda um, book that you uh, mentioned earlier and a few other psychology of video games kinds of things and tabletop role playing games. And they have like certification courses for geek therapists who want to who are like therapists, you know, psychologists, therapists who want to incorporate like geek culture into their practice and sort of to connect with people and to use in their therapy. And so that will probably come out sometime in 2024. So don't go looking for it at your local bookstore just yet at the time <laughs> of recording. But maybe, you know, if you come to this podcast late, it might be available uh, or available for, for pre-order. Excellent. Do you have any other projects planned after that? No, <laughs> so that's, <laughs> that's going to be enough. I will probably, I will probably take a step back and and maybe refresh psychology of games to to think about like should I pivot to video? Like should I should I learn how to do video production now and take that as like the next step and and turn some of these things that I've done into into YouTube videos. I'll only be about ten years late uh, if I decide to do that. <laughs> like what's hot <laughs> at the moment. Um, or I might just keep doing the text and, and the audio podcasts uh, and see how things that go that way. Um, 
but I don't have any other ideas for books yet. There may be another one. Maybe I'll try my hand at fiction. Who knows? World's my oyster, I suppose. It is. It is. And I'm yeah. excited to see what you come up with. I've, I've been enjoying your journey. I'm, I'm so happy I found your podcast. And um, I've actually only been doing this for about, oh, about two years interviewing oh, wow. people. So um, I really enjoy it. I, I used to freelance for a local magazine and talk about things that were happening and local cool people. So mm-hmm. that, that ended because it was sustained strictly through ads and print publications oh, yes. or... Yeah, it's hard to time has not been kind to the ad advertising model. No. Uh, yeah. No. So this is how I, I can do it. And I really like it because I can make it conversational and, and get to meet people. So I really appreciate your time, Jamie. And yeah. how would how can people support you? So the the probably the best and first thing to do is go to psychologyofgames.com. And that's the the main website. And I've got like literally hundreds of articles that I've written since 2009 uh, on on there. They're all free for you to go check out. And then if you just wanted to do that to support me to like go visit the website and read some of the articles and maybe tweet or otherwise share some of the ones you like best, then that would be great. And then you can also buy the book. There's information there. You can just go to Amazon or wherever else you buy books and search for Getting Gamers or The Engagement Game. Uh, which is the second book I wrote about sort of marrying industrial organizational psychology with the psychology of games, which is like, what does the psychology of good game design tell you about how to be a better manager, like in the workplace? Mm -hmm. Uh, So you can find out about that, subscribe to the podcast. um, And then you can always, if you really want to help me out, you can either buy the books or uh, check out my Patreon at patreon.com slash POG, which is where a lot of people uh, choose to support me. But honestly, like, just go check out the website. See what you see. That's awesome. And did you give your Twitter handle? Uh, it's at Jamie Madigan. J-A-M-I-E-M-A-D-I-G-A-N. Perfect. And you're very personable on there. I think you recently tweeted some PAX socks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I went to PAX Unplugged for the first time uh, earlier in December and uh, and had a good time. Wow. Where was that? Which uh, city was that in? Philadelphia. Okay. So that's the one that's about tabletop games. So board games, card games, uh, tabletop role-playing games like Dungeons and Dragons and others. Um, So that was my first first time going to that one. It was a good time. Yeah. Yeah. Enjoyed it. I had been to the the packs for video games a couple of times as well. And that's a similar but different experience. So had a good time at both. Oh, are, are you planning on going to any conventions this year? Or expos? Maybe. I'll have to see. I'd like to go to one of the big game, um, D&D tabletop role-playing games, like either Gen Con, uh, mm. maybe, which is like one of the longest-running, uh, biggest ones. Um, so maybe I'll, I'll look into going at that. And then next year, you know, hopefully to promote the book, I can kind of make a have a better excuse <laughs> to hit up some more of those and find time away uh, to do that. And, and sleep and eat at some point, hang sure. out with your family, you know, yeah. those, <laughs> those things. Yeah, those are important too. Well, is there any other closing notes you'd like to share with, with listeners about psychology, video games, yourself? No, I mean, I, I hope you, you all find it interesting. My mission is to sort of popularize the use of psychology to understanding why games are made the way they are, why they're uh, marketed and sold the way they are, and why we behave as we do when we play them. And that's, that's my mission. And if that piques your interest, then go check it out. 
Awesome. Well, thank you again, Jamie, for your time. And I'm, I'm happy for your friend's new baby. That's so exciting. <laughs> yeah. Maybe we can get back to gaming next week. We'll see. Bring the baby. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> Let the baby win. <laughs> well, thank you all so much for listening. Um, you can find other 1v1 interviews at bossrush.net. And you can follow me, Celeste, on Twitter at FairyCrypt. But until next time, we'll talk to y'all later. Thanks, everybody. Thanks. 1v1, the creator interview series, is a product of Boss Rush Media, LLC, and part of the Boss Rush Podcast Supplemental Podcast. This show is hosted by Celeste Roberts. You can also hear interviews from other Boss Rush Media members on your favorite podcast app or on YouTube. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at FairyCrypt. To get updates on the latest episodes, follow the Boss Rush Podcast, Boss Rush Media, and Boss Rush Network on all major social media platforms, or subscribe to the Boss Rush podcast feed in your favorite podcast application. Join the Boss Rush Network Discord and Facebook groups to interact with other friends and fans. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.